we're going to make it through 50 verses this morning. So, if you listen quickly, I will talk quickly, and we will, we will move along. So for the sake of time, let's jump right in. Last week, this week we talked about how salvation and gospel vocation are inseparable. How the fact that we've been saved then comes with a vocation, it comes with a doing, it comes with a, I hate to say this word, but it comes with a job, it comes with action. I hate to say the word job because I don't want this to imply some level of duty, but in a sense there is a duty, but it just isn't motivated by duty, but nevertheless, salvation and gospel vocation, the, the proclaiming of the gospel is not an option. Uh, and I would say in many ways, it's, it's not even a choice. Because I think someone who is saved becomes a gospel proclaimer. It's a necess- it, they just go together. But those who have been saved will seek to bring about the obedience of the faith to the nations for the sake of His name. Otherwise, we would be loving something when God loves something else more. Right? I mean, think about that for a second. Why would God call us to love something when he loves something else more, if we are to be made in, if we're in the, in the image of God and be made into the likeness of Christ. But instead, God loves his name and does what he does for the sake of his name. Not the sake of your name or my name, but the sake of his own name. Now, out of this love for his own name, I think God takes action to secure his own name, to secure the glory that would be given to his own name. And the implications for us living for the love of his name as well are huge. The impact that God loving his own it is ours in Christ. Now, it's with some of these thoughts that kind of come to John 6 here, I think I think Jesus, if you follow with me, I think Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that his father's desire was to do what needed to be done for the sake of bringing glory to his name. I think Jesus lived in light of this truth. Jesus knew the state of man's condition and the work that the father had done and was doing to change that. I think Jesus went with bold confidence proclaiming His gospel. I think Jesus went with expectations of some to come, but many to walk away. And Jesus went with joy and abiding in the Father and hope for the future when His Father would raise Him up. He did this because He knew the Father's work for the sake of His own name. And I thought this week, oh, that we would walk the way that Christ walked for the love of His own name. That we too would walk knowing the Father's love for His own name and us sharing in that love and bringing about that end that all would worship His name. And I just thought to myself, just a quick side note, how did Jesus know such things? How did he know such things that we will see in this passage? 
<clears throat> you say, well, it's because he was God, of course. I think it's because he knew the Old Testament. Because he studied the Word. The same words that are available to you and I. So let me set this up for you very quickly coming into John 6. Because we're going to start in 22. We're going to skip about 21 verses here. But I don't want to just parachute right in here. So let me set this up real quick. This was a season of Passover for the Jews in John at this point when he's recounting this story. The season of Passover. So think about this, the season of Passover. Every year, the people of God had a reminder. They had an exercise in being reminded of their salvation from slavery in Egypt. They were to take, uh, if you remember from the Passover, they were to take a lamb. They were to spill its blood. They were to place the blood on the doorposts. And then they were to eat the flesh of the animal. And if there was anything left by morning, they were to burn it all away. So this is what's going on. This is the, cease, the season of the Passover. Celebrating that, remembering that. Then the beginning of chapter 6, it's in this context that then Jesus feeds the 5,000. He feeds them fishes, fishies, and feeds them loaves of bread. Okay? Afterwards, he withdraws to the mountain. Now, it's interesting here because you see, I'm not going to read it, but what happens is Jesus, perceiving that they were about to make him king, he withdraws to the mountain. He pulls away. The way in which they wanted to make him king, and I think the timing in which they wanted to make him king, was not the kingship that he had come for yet. So what does he do? He withdraws to the mountain. Then the disciples make the journey across the sea. It was interesting as I was in this, uh, I, I hadn't thought about this even in preparing the sermon, but as I was sitting in a class this past, this past week, he, he's recounting the story, brought to my attention that in this passage we see really a miraculous water crossing here at this point, just as we saw in the Exodus. The Israelites are leaving, and they, they, the parting of the Red Sea, and here comes the Israelites and Moses, and then the sea collapses. So you have this miraculous water crossing. Well, here what you have is you have Jesus withdrawing to the mountaintop. I think John and, and Christ's purpose here is to, is to allude to, to Moses, to the, the ascension to the mountaintop and Mount Sinai. And, but then you have the disciples cross. What, what goes on as they cross the Sea of Galilee? It's to Capernaum. The, the waters begin to go crazy and... And the storm calms, and then what do they see? They see Jesus walking on water. And the water's calm. And they cross on across the sea. It's interesting, if you read Psalm, uh, as, as the professor of this class this past week, he reads Psalm 10730. He said, when, when they were glad that the waters were quiet, uh, then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. It's interesting, this Old Testament kind of, prophesying or speaking of this that will happen in the future. And as they speak to Jesus, the beginning of chapter 6 here, Jesus says, it is I. And Jesus at this point means to identify himself as none only than God, no other than God. So I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying similar to what God said to Moses when he says, when I go to Egypt, who should I say sent me? And he says, say it as I am. 
It is I am who sent you. All right, so with all that background that we come into verse 22 of chapter 6. Let's read all the way through 72 or 71 rather. It says this, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to, to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that, but, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Huh. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes has eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us this flesh to eat? Give us his flesh to eat, rather. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If that wasn't enough, he goes on, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Going on, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Listen to this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Listen to Simon's words. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as we study your word, as we see what you have to say to us today in these words, we pray that uh, you be glorified. It's in your son's name, Father. Amen. All right, so there's, 
there are multiple ways, I think, to go at this passage, to, to get at what is being said and being told. There's many things we could focus on in this passage. We can focus on the actual words that Jesus is teaching. He is the bread of life. He has he uh, come down from heaven. He is the fulfillment of, of those such things. And we'll talk a little bit about those. What I want to spend today doing largely is looking at what Christ did both in this passage and in general and how, what he did that in light of. What did Jesus know and how did that impact the way he lived? What did Jesus know? What did he do? How did that knowing impact what he was doing? So kind of my goal for us is for us to see that we are motivated and empowered by God's love for his own name to live confident and, and expectant missional lives. That we would live in light. We would live missionally. That we would live proclaiming the gospel in light of and motivated by and empowered by God's love for his own name and the actions that he took because of the love for his own name. So these first two points I want us to see here, I think we see from the passage that translate to our culture very clearly today, are very similarly related, but nevertheless I kind of broke them up just to kind of help us think through this a little bit. But the first thing we need to see is that we need to understand that the world is seeking to have their fill of the loaves. Nothing has changed since John 6. Our world is seeking, we often are seeking to have our fill of the loaves, to have our fill of the bread. Jesus, even in verse in chapter 6, indicates that their fathers were seeking to have their fill of the loaves, just the same as you are doing today. You see, the world works for the physical only. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. See, they were concerned. The disciples, the people following at this point, think disciples in this, in this passage is used in a couple different ways. You've got to understand that real quick. He's not just referring to the twelve every time he says disciples in this passage. Sometimes he's referring to just the larger group that was following him. Those, I think, were largely the ones at the end of the chapter that turned and walked away, and the twelve remained. But Jesus was saying is that they were concerned with only the physical, that which perishes, that which is temporal, when they should have been concerned with that which was eternal and that which was spiritual. I'm not going to linger on this too long here, but we need to understand that the world struggles with that. They struggle with it here. We've struggled with it since the garden. We'll struggle with it till Christ returns, and you and I both, too, struggle with the same thing. We struggle with desiring and working for food that perishes. Now here's where I think this is important. If we don't first understand and fight this battle ourselves, then we will never take the gospel, nor be effective in taking the gospel to the world. Many times I have conversations with people about sharing the gospel, and they're talking about the sin of someone who's struggling, like, at their workplace or whatever, and, oh, you know, I just don't know how to, how to share the gospel with them, and, and, and 
and I find myself often is helping people see, look, you're sinning in the same way that they do. It's just you have hope. You have hope to overcome that sin, or you have sinned in the same way. So how does the gospel speak to that sin in your life? Maybe your sin just looks a little bit different, but how does the gospel speak to the sin in your life? Jesus understood the plight of man, the the situation that man had in order to then take the gospel to them. But as we think about this, we too struggle with working for good that perishes. If What are some ways that we live being more concerned with the physical instead of the spiritual? I think if you look over this past week, there shouldn't be, shouldn't be too hard. You shouldn't be too desperate to find examples of that. Um, I'm sure there are multiple. So just very briefly, uh, just kind of thinking through an application of this. I think we should look at everyone's life and evaluate this. What food are they working for that is perishing? You see your coworkers, you see your neighbor. What food are they working for that is perishing? Maybe they work for the acceptance of others. How might the gospel that never fails speak to that perishing food? Maybe they're working to earn favor before God. That is certainly a perishing pursuit. How might the gospel speak to that perishing food? I don't have time to answer those right now, but think about those things. How? I just want us to see that the world is seeking the physical when they should be concerned with the spiritual. Not that the physical is unimportant, okay? The physical is important. I don't want us to be... Uh, there's a heresy called that, and I don't remember what it's called. So the next thing we should see is that the message we proclaim is difficult for a world in love with its own name. We should see that the message we proclaim is difficult for a world in love with its own name. All that Jesus had just got done saying, this drink my blood and eat my flesh, is saying that your name is worthy of hell, the only name worthy of glory is my Father's. So you must forsake your name for the sake of my name. You must forsake your righteousness for the sake of my righteousness. And in a world, in a people, even ourselves included, this is not just for people outside of these doors, but for us too, the gospel of drink my blood and eat my flesh is hard for a people to swallow when they're choking on their own name. All right, so Jesus here, 29 through 36, just a general thought here. They saw in the Old Testament and did not believe, and so now in the New Testament they see and do not believe. Jesus says these in 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave them the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. I think what's going on in their minds is that they they know the recounting of the stories in the Exodus and as they're wandering, as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, that they saw the manna from heaven, that, that God sustained his people, both the elect in Israel and the nation of Israel. They were sustained by the manna from heaven. They saw this as coming from Moses' hand. And I think now they're also thinking about the feeding from the day before. Right? The fishes, the loaves, see the bread, they see the manna. But I mean, what Jesus is saying here is that you see the physical realities, the food to your mouth, but you're not seeing the spiritual realities as this coming from the hand of God. And that now, because that too came from the hand of God, it didn't come from Moses' hand, it came from the hand of God, that now... This, yes, I broke, physically broke bread, fed you yesterday. But I, that is just a, uh, uh, well, is just a, uh, I can't think of the word. Nevertheless, it is, it is a picture of the reality, the true reality, the spiritual reality that is I, Christ, am come from the hand of God to be the bread of life. And Jesus is saying, it's Passover. I fed the 5,000, but what is typified by the manna from heaven is now fulfilled in me. And I wonder, I wonder, not Jesus is not saying this, I'm saying this. I wonder even for us, how much of our missional living, how much of our following Christ is hindered because manna from heaven stands before us, like the bread of life, but we keep choosing the dirt off the shoes of the other gods that we worship. And Jesus is standing before them saying, I am the bread of life and you do not see me as such. The things, that's when he says here that, that um, where's, where's it at? That's about the signs. You do not see the signs. What Jesus is saying is you don't see the reality that is before you. You should be seeing these signs. You should be seeing that what God did in the Old Testament is now coming to fulfillment. But you're not seeing these things. You're too fixated on having your bellies filled. The same thing with the Israelites. Say we'd be better off back in Egypt, right? We'd be better off back there. What were they concerned about? They were concerned about having their bellies filled. What is this message that we proclaim to the world? Let's read John 6, 37 through 40. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the message that we preach. The message that we proclaim. The message that is hard to swallow. 
If the Father has given you to Jesus, you will follow Him and never be cast out. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And He will never lose it. This is a message, I think, again, that's hard to swallow. We want credit for our salvation. We want credit for keeping our salvation. We want our name to be made great. The world is so fixated on the physical. Jesus is saying there's something more here. But Jesus also recognizes that they cannot see it unless God has enabled them to see it. Later, Jesus will tell them that the righteousness, uh, tell them of the righteousness that they must drink of, eat my flesh, drink my blood. He is saying this is a hard message. I wrote this down in my notes. We must first spit out, the, the message that Jesus is preaching here ultimately is we must spit out the filth, the filth out of our mouth that we call self-righteousness in order to eat of true righteousness that is His flesh and drink His blood. I mean, this is counter our very essence. We want to be self-sustaining, self-governing, self-promoting. But to drink of Jesus' blood and eat of His flesh is to be dependent on God, to God to be the governing person in our lives, and to be God promoting His name, promoting. It's the opposite. All right, so this is our situation. I just think we have to understand, what is the context that Jesus is speaking here? What is Jesus, when Jesus is saying these words, what is, what is going on in the hearts and minds of those around them? Because I think it, it's not changed. It's the same thing today. This is the world, and this is where our hearts are prone to move toward. This filling of the physical and the forsaking of the spiritual. We must understand these things. Jesus think Jesus understood these things. He knew the battle that he was facing here. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, and I think what happens is we tend to become fixated when we think about proclaiming the gospel to our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, we become fixated on the plight of man instead of the glory of God. I think Jesus was fixated here, not on the plight of man. Yes, certainly he had that in his mind. I think Jesus, what he had in mind, was the things that he recounts to them concerning the Father. Now, certainly I think Jesus had more on his mind than just these things, but he certainly had, the very least that he had on his mind was the things that he recounts to them in the passage concerning the Father. And that's where we're going to spend the next few moments of our time. Jesus lived confidently, missionally, because he believed his Father acted upon his love for his name. Because he believed his Father acted upon his love for his name. Jesus is doing nothing less than proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in this passage. He's living on mission. He is taking the name. He's bringing about obedience to the faith. I want us to see something. I want us to see that Jesus trusted the Father's volition or the, the Father's choosing and acting on that choosing. In verse 41, he says, So the Jews grumbled about him, 
Because he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus knows that the father's choosing will happen. He knows that the father has chosen. He has trusted that that choosing will come to fruition. It will become a reality. But they could not accept this. The Jews could not accept this. They began to explain it away in terms that I think ultimately built themselves up. But even still, Jesus reminded them. He reminded them and himself that they could only come if the Father had willed that they come. I mean, think about that picture. Jesus is proclaiming the character of God to them and also recognizing that which he is trusting in. He's not trusting in his ability to persuade the Pharisees or the Pharisees' ability to, uh, to choose for themselves or, or any of these kind of things that we think we have to do when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. Well, what's Jesus do? Jesus knows that if the Father has willed this, that it will happen. Just, just think about that. When we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we, do we believe that those whom God has chosen will come? Do we believe that? Do we live as such? Do we proclaim with the boldness that should come? Well, more of that in a few seconds. So the f- first thing I want us to see is that God promised action. Jesus believed that God promised action. And God was acting, certainly, and then there was certain future action that God would do. Look in 45 through 46, moving on in John. It is written in the prophets, and they will, be, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So God had promised that his people would be taught by him. What does that mean for missions? What does that mean for proclaiming the gospel? It means that if you're proclaiming the gospel, if they've been taught by God, if God has worked in their heart, if God has changed, if God has regenerated, if God has done these things, if God has prepared them, then they will come. Jesus believed that those who the Father had taught, when they heard the voice of the Father's Son, they would come. God had promised action in the past, and Jesus believed that God was good for His Word. My question for us this morning in light of this is, do you believe that those who have been taught by God, when they hear the voice of the Savior, will come? Do you believe that? Do you believe that your children, that if God is the one teaching, working in their hearts that that when they hear the voice of the Savior, they will come. Believe that. Now my mind immediately goes to, well yeah, well, th- but there's lots of people that I've shared the gospel. There's lots of people that I've proclaimed the gospel to and they, did, they haven't come. May not be your timeline, okay? May not be my timeline. 
It could be 30 years later. But do you truly believe? Let me, let me ask you, did Jesus believe that God, that all he had to do was walk, proclaim the gospel, live for the glory of God, for the sake of his name, and that those that were his sheep would come. They would walk. They would walk his direction. They would follow him. Like, do, do, we, do we have that view? I mean, I think, I think many of us have the view that if there is a sheep out there, we've got to go like, you know, hog time, right? You know, go like, you know? We've got to somehow persuade them. Now, certainly, I think persuasion and stuff, that, that, that's good. We should be persuasive. We should be convincing. We sh- yes, but, but if God has done this, they will come. And they sheep hear his voice. Jesus says elsewhere, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Let me ask you this question. Do you come running when you hear the voice of the Savior? I think it's hard to proclaim a gospel to people and have any level of expectation that those who hear his voice will come when those of us proclaiming his gospel don't come when we hear his voice. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to say that it depends on us because it's, it's God, but God's chosen to use us. And, but... You come running when you hear the voice of the Savior. If you love His name, you will come running. And I just just have to press this thought just a little bit further. If you don't come when you hear the voice of the Savior, you think you're a Christian, but I think what that indicates is that you never were taught by God. And if you never were taught by God, and that means the gospel that you are supposedly proclaiming, certainly isn't coming out of a gospel-changed heart. So Jesus himself, kind of get back on tracks here, but Jesus himself lived out of a love for the Father's name. He knew, knew God had promised action. He believed that God was doing this for the sake of his name. And Jesus says in verse 30, I'm going to jump back a few verses. He says, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right, so that God has promised action. Jesus believed this. Jesus also believed that God had sent the bread of life. Look at verse 47. So God had sent the bread of life, just in case you didn't get that written down. Verse 47, look with me here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then in verse 57, he says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he, will, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So God gave manna from heaven in the Old Testament to care for the physical needs of his people as they wandered the wilderness. Now in Christ, that shadow has become a reality. And those who eat of this manna from heaven will never die. Jesus believed, guys, just think about this. Jesus, Jesus believed that God had sent manna from heaven, a food that would surely sustain spiritual life forever. It would be the tree of life to our desperate hearts. Jesus believed himself to be such. And instead of eternal condemnation, eternal destruction, eternal separation from God, Jesus believed that God had sent him to be bread of life. My question for us is, do you live proclaiming the gospel as though you have bread from heaven to offer? Do do you, do, do you believe that what you are proclaiming to your kids, to your spouse, to yourself, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, do you believe that it is the bread of life? You've heard the old saying, I, I hate this because I think it even trivializes it maybe to a certain extent, but what if you had the cure for cancer and you just kept it to yourself, right? Like, how awesome would that be? Right? It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? How much more? Right? So that's just being fixated on the physical. What about if we're fixated on the spiritual? And you have the cure for their spiritual illness. Jesus believed that he was the bread of life. That in him was eternal life. In him was eternal reconciliation with the Father. Let me ask you this. Do we live as though we're eating bread from heaven? Do we living as though that we have the bread of life? It's the area in which I've been challenged in very recently. I mean, some of our spiritual diets, kind of like eating at McDonald's every day, three meals a day. We live as though you're eating bread from heaven. I think, I think if we realize sometimes the wilderness in which we walk, we, we're, we would more greatly realize the manna that stands before us. But too, so many of us are delighting too much in the wilderness and the, the thorns and thistles of the wilderness that we can't see or delight in the manna that stands in front of us. Jesus knew that his father had acted in giving bread from heaven. He knew that he was that bread, and he came to proclaim that bread. Second thing we see is that God's, the third thing we see is that God sacrificed the bread of life. That God was, maybe more accurately here, God would sacrifice the bread of life. And Jesus had not been sacrificed yet, but Jesus knew that this was coming. I think Jesus knew where his life was headed. 
primarily from studying the scriptures. So look at verse 52. So the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I think God was working out his plan of redemption. Jesus knew this. What Jesus means here is that those who have faith in blood and the, in the blood and the flesh of Christ and the purpose for which it was sacrificed and spilt, they will have eternal life. Jesus is not saying this. I, you know, I know Catholics get into this, uh, like where the, the, the blood, like the juice or the wine, whatever it is, really becomes the blood and, and the, the, yeah, yeah, that word. Uh, and then the, the bread literally becomes, like once it enters and it literally becomes the bread. I don't think that's what Jesus is remotely getting. I think, again, the whole point in this whole passage is Jesus saying, you don't get, you're fixated on the physical reality. I want you to fixate on the spiritual reality. Spiritual reality is that you want to keep drinking and eating of your own righteousness instead of drinking and eating of my righteousness. In the garden, man brought death upon himself when he ate of the I can do this on my own tree. In the same way, man brings upon life upon himself as he eats upon the I am utterly helpless without you tree. A.W. Pink said this, eating in the garden brings death, but eating of Christ brings life the next thing we see i just want to kind of grab a hold of another thing here that god's work through the spirit as the giver of life we need to see this that when we speak our words when we encounter people with the gospel we take the gospel to the nations when we pray for those who take the gospel to the nations we pray and understand that it's the spirit is the giver of life. 63, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The latter half of that verse, our spirit and life, I think is getting to Jesus believing that He is the bread of life, that what He has to say and the words that He speaks and that His life is spirit and life. And here, He says that the Spirit gives life. Jesus believed that the words He was speaking are spirit and life. The next thing we see is that graciously God has chosen some. I know we live in an age that just does not like that idea, but we're so fixated on we deserve Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It means that the Father gives some and doesn't give others. But I want, I want, us, to, I want us to stop fixating here on the fact that, well, we all deserve to go to heaven, because that's the only argument that you would have to, to fuss with what Jesus says here. And it's not even an argument, it's just an just worship of man but understand that there is a giving that God 
has given them. The fact that God would give any. You know what I'm saying? The fact that God would give any. He says that he who he welcomes will never be cast out. Like, do you believe that when you proclaim the gospel to someone and you lead them to the cross, do you believe that they will be kept well? That they will never be cast out? All right, the next thing we see is that with certainty, and then they say that think Jesus believed, Jesus understood, Jesus proclaimed here, even in the context, is that with certainty, those whom God chose will come. Those whom God has chosen will come. The Father will draw them. Look at 44 through 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. As is written in the prophets, they... And they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone God has chosen, God teaches. And those whom God has taught, they will come. It's not they might come. They probably will come. They should come. It would be wise if they did come. No, they will come. You know what my prayer is for my kids? It's that they would be taught by God. That God would take their heart and teach them. Now I know that Sarah and I, this church, our family members are a part of this. By God's grace, these are all ways in which God can use. But oh, that they would be taught by God. In a way that only God can teach their hearts. Only God can take the truth we speak and pierce their hearts with it. So just think about this. Do you share the gospel knowing that if the Father has chosen that person, that He will draw them? And do you walk away trusting that to God? Or do you walk away upset, discouraged, fearful? All those are just things of just not trusting God. If God has done it, he, he will do it. If God has chosen, He will do it. I think a couple things for your exploration later that, that is very clearly taught here in this passage is two great doctrines, the doctrine of election and the doctrine of irresistible grace. That God's irresistible grace meaning God's drawing of the elect. Those whom God has chosen, He will draw them. And they will come. I wrote this down in my notes. I'm thankful that I could not resist His irresistible grace because if I could, I surely would. All right. We should wrap up here very quickly. Four implications for missional living, okay? Very, very quickly here. We're going to spend a lot of time probably fleshing these out this week. First one, we go expecting some to come but many to walk away. I think that is an implication. We go expecting some to come, but many to walk away. When I say by go, what I mean is we proclaim the gospel, we share the gospel, we encourage others to do likewise. Now for all you superstitious people, John 6, 6, 6. Alright? Just don't stamp that on your forehead. 
After this, many of us, and look what kind of passage, look what kind of verse it is, too. Isn't that funny? Must be ordained by God. There we go. Well, it is ordained by God, but you know. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, I know, is there someone here that went on to read verse 37 so you wouldn't just read, or 67, so you wouldn't just read 666? Okay, good. All right, listen, listen. Here's what I want to see. Stop getting discouraged because many walk away. Expect it. I think it's an implication of this passage. Dude, look, guys, they walked away from Jesus. And the last time I checked, none of us were to that stature or that powerful, that whatever. I love it at the end. This was very encouraging to me this past week when he says, many, many walked away and he looked at the disciples and said, you want to go too? Like, you ready? You want to leave too? So encouraging to me. Be encouraged. Guys, be encouraged because there are still sheep out there that God is preparing to hear the gospel from your mouth. Guys, the fact that Jesus has not come means that there are still sheep to be gathered. And that when those sheep hear God's voice, they will come. I keep thinking maybe the quicker we gather the sheep, the quicker Jesus will come. Let's get to work. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm enjoying life in the gospel, but this sure is a lot of pain in this world. All right, we should keep going. We proclaim the bold. We proclaim with boldness because He is the one who draws them. He is the one who draws them. Verse forty-five. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I think we too often fear our ability to persuade. I mean, now listen to me, listen. We really do need to know the gospel. We really do need to know how to explain it. We really do need to know how the whole Bible paints the picture of the gospel. We really do need to be able to explain these and teach these things. Because what is our purpose? What is our vocation? Is it just to get someone to say a prayer, to get someone to profess Jesus? No. What is our vocation? To bring about the obedience of the faith. What does Jesus say? To teach them all how to obey all that I have commanded. How are you to do that if you can barely explain the gospel? All right, I'm done preaching. Next one. We don't turn back because Jesus has the words of life. And He is the one who keeps We don't turn back because Jesus has the words of life. Verse 39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Then verse 68 and 69, Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. Why would we choose anything else? You understand daily as we choose other things to place our faith in, our, our, our hope in, our expectations in, 
that all we're doing is saying that this over here, maybe it's my control, maybe it's other people's affirmation, maybe it's, maybe it's my ability to persuade, maybe it's the organization of my life, that all we are saying when those things have captivated our hearts is that that item, that that part of my life, that ability to control, that, that ability to secure affirmation, that those things have the words of life, and Jesus does not. He says, where else should we go? There's nowhere else for us to go. You are the only one that has the words of life. And those who truly believe that He is the only one that has the true words of life, He will keep us from running away. Amen? Now you see what happened? I want us to not miss what happened. The disciples sitting in this context, like Jesus is talking about eat my flesh and drink my blood and all this crazy stuff. The disciples weren't like, oh yeah, dude, that makes perfect sense. Gotcha. Like that's awesome. All those other dummies, they don't get it, but maybe they will someday. We got it, Jesus, we're with you. I think the disciples barely had a clue what Jesus was talking about here. But you know what they did have? They had faith that he was the Holy One of God. They didn't understand it all. They didn't get it all. I mean, there's plenty of other passages and in the other Gospels where Jesus is going, look, how come you guys don't get this? And I don't think it was until they were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus talks to them and, and the, heart, the words begin to burn in their hearts, right? I think it was then they probably looked back on this day and they went, oh, I get what you're saying now. I see it. I think what was happening when Jesus, after his, his death, burial, and resurrection, he's walking with the disciples. I think what happened was they looked back on this day, and they looked back on the Old Testament, and they go, ha, I see it. I see it. The manna from heaven, the Passover, we walked with that for three years. And I think when we realize who we're walking with, It would change things. He says, where should we go? You're, you have the words of life. Fourth implication, we go with joy because in forsaking the flesh, it is the Spirit who has given us life. We go with joy. Why? Because when the Spirit gives life, He gives joy. They go together. I have two things underneath this. First one, hope for the future. Why do we have joy? Because we have hope for the future. Look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And what? And I will raise him up on the last day. And, and what? And he will be a good Christian and do religious activity until the last day? No, I will raise him up on the last day. We have joy because we have hope for the future. You know, an implication of this implication would be that stop fearing what might happen to you as you proclaim the gospel. Stop fearing what your coworkers might say. Stop fearing what it might cost you to support or even give your own life to the nations. We have hope that Christ will raise us up on the last day. The second thing, we have joy in the now. Joy for here and now. 
verse 57, I'm sorry, 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. We could do a whole study on what does it mean to abide in Christ and Christ in us. And I just, I wonder, if we savored the abiding of Christ in us, if the gospel we shared would be more lovely to the ugly around us. I mean, if what we treasure is just as ugly as that which is treasured around us, then why would the world ever exchange what they have for what we have? He abides in us, and we in Him. I wonder if we savored more of the abiding of Christ if we would talk about it more. I'm sure there will be lots of talk tonight after the Cowboys get spanked by that green team, right? And I'm sure there will be lots of talk once the Ducks get squashed tomorrow night and the SEC is put away. I know they're not the SEC, but the SEC just put away, you know. I'm sure there'll be lots of talk because there's lots of abiding in football teams. There's lots of excitement in football teams. That may help you understand. They don't, you can abide in that football team. You can abide in your hope and other things, but those things don't abide in you. Maybe your checkbook, but they don't abide in you. Here we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. And Jesus says, I have to go so the Spirit can come. Something greater is going to come. I mean, think about that, Jesus' word. Something greater is coming. I must go. All right, so last couple of thoughts. For the sake of his own name, see what God has done. He sent bread of life. He sacrificed the bread of life. He gives life through the Spirit. He chose some to receive the bread of life, and he, ch- he draws those whom he has chosen. The work that God has done for the sake of his own name is marvelous. As we seek to live for the sake of His name, we should be motivated and empowered by God's love for His own name. It's what you see all over this passage, all over the life of Christ. He knew that God loved His name, and that was the only name worthy of worship. And Jesus knew and studied what God was doing and had done for the sake of His name. And so, what else is there to do but to live for the sake of His name? Let me remind us of last week. All of this is for the sake of His name, not just among us, but among the nations. And among the nations, that God's name would be glorified among all people. I want to pray for us, and we'll we'll worship this morning. Father, thank You for time this morning. Thank you that we to worship you this morning. Father, Father, I pray that we would see the gospel in this passage. That we would see Jesus saying, forsake your righteousness, forsake the temporary 
hope and joy that you're seeking for right now. Forsake your own pursuits to be right with God. Repent of those things. And place your trust in my work on the cross. Place your trust in my body that will be broken. Place your trust in my blood that will be spilt. Because I will die, I did die in your place. So if there's anyone here that does not know you, Father, does not know you as Savior and, and their Father, but that they would do that, they would repent of their sins and place their hope in you. That they would believe, they would believe on you, believe that you are the Son of God sent from God to die on the cross for our sins. And Father, for those of us who are followers of your Son, Jesus, Father, I pray that we would preach that gospel to ourselves continually. That we would not forsake your gospel to embrace our gospel, the gospel of self-sustaining, the gospel of self-righteousness. And Father, that we would be a people who say, that say to you, where else could we go? You're the one with the words of eternal life. Uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with us?